Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale. Growing up in America, well, okay, in a lot of places, you might take for granted how needlessly gendered everything is. There are pink toys and blue ones, pink toiletries that smell like freesia, and blue ones that smell like disgruntled sea captains. You know what I mean. Even though the products are the same, the pink ones, like razors and nail clippers, for example, are always a little bit more expensive. Pink toys, too. The phenomenon is called the pink tax, the premium put on items marketed at women and girls. It's not fair, so why do so many people pay it? Well, gender is so ingrained in our society that for a lot of people, it's unthinkable to stray outside of gender norms, whether that's through appearance or behavior or just the stuff you buy at Target. How many cishet guys do you know who'd willingly shop in the ladies' section or wouldn't be absolutely mortified to buy a box of tampons for their girlfriend? It's sad, really. As we try to inch ever closer to equality between the sexes, the minutia of everyday life is as gendered as ever. It's so prevalent that you might not even notice it. It's just the way that things are, right? Well, it might surprise you to hear that it wasn't always this way. In fact, the modern concept of gender, as opposed to sex, only dates back to about the 1950s. I find this absolutely mind-blowing. So how and why did it even come about? To answer that question, we had to find an expert. This week, we are delighted to welcome to the show Dr. Sandra Ader. Sandra is an assistant history professor at Berkeley. She is also co-editor of Pink and Blue, Gender, Culture, and the Health of Children. Her new book is How the Clinic Made Gender, A Medical History of a Transformative Idea. This book looks at the beginnings of the modern concept of gender that came about through the medical treatment of children born with intersex traits. It's a medical history, but it also tells us a lot about America and how things got to be this way. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further delay, here's my interview with Dr. Sandra Ada. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. We're so glad to have you. Now, this book was absolutely mind-blowing to me. Now, where do I start? (laughs) So growing up in America, uh, gender just seems like it's part of the natural order. So I find it unbelievable that our modern concept of gender wasn't handed down by like Moses, but it only actually dates back to about 1950. This is a lot to wrap our heads around, but we're going to try. So in your new book, How the Clinic Made Gender, you look at the development of the concept of gender, beginning with the treatment of children born with intersex traits in the mid-20th century. Just to make sure that everybody's on the same page, let's start with the the science. For these people, what was the difference between sex and gender? So that's a great question. Um, 
And uh, I just want to add, it was absolute. It's uh, it's mind blowing for me, and that was really uh, drew me into this into this history to kind of look for the origins of when did people start talking about gender, and then to find these origins in the clinic. And so that was something that really intrigued me, especially given that it's, gender is so, as you said, ubiquitous today. Everybody talks about gender in very different forms. And so one of the things for me was as a historian to go back and think like, so how do we actually start differentiating between sex and gender? And just uh, the thing I wanted to also say, I mean, just generally speaking, I mean, of course, people have talked about this for a long time before the 1950s, and there have been all kinds of uh, fights around what, what does behavior mean, what is masculinity, what is femininity, what makes a man, what makes a woman. But this is this moment in the 1950s where the term gender is used the first time to uh, set it apart from sex. And it makes, and the context makes a lot of, um, uh, makes a difference. So the context really matters because what these guys in the clinic are trying to do is to solve a practical questions. So they, they are working with uh, children with intersex traits, they're treating them, they feel the incentive to, uh, to determine what their true sex is, how 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 should they live? It's not they can't really. It's it's like often a question that cannot be easily resolved by fixating on a biological quality. And so one of the things that uh, gender emerges from the clinic as a practical solution. So in a way, what they're saying and they're coming up with this term, they're making up this terminology is to say, well, sex is all these biological subcategories that because it's not just one thing it's not just sex chromosomes it's uh not just gonads testes and ovaries it's not just um uh, hormones or reproductive organs it's like all these like different factors and then there is the social sex in a way the sex the child is raised in and often these are in contradiction so how can we figure out what's the right, the correct sex for this person? And what they do is that's when they bring in gender role. That's the, when they bring in gender role as a way to measure what, you know, to, to figure out what sex the child should, should come in. And they uh, make this big claim that, you know, Children learn their gender role in um, uh, as they grow up, in the course of growing up, in the course of being, uh, being uh, you know, experience life uh, as a boy or a girl, and being seen as a boy and girl, and getting all these signals and clothes and being raised like that, and that becomes the gender role regardless of biological sex characteristics. Right, a lot goes into it, and it's not just um, kind of like pink toys versus blue toys, right? <laughs> so well, those play a role too <laughs> so, and they do <laughs> yeah they do it's not just the pink tax like they call yeah. it you know oh my goodness so what made Johns Hopkins such a key institution for children of disputed gender um so John Hopkins had a, I mean, Hopkins, of, of course, is an institution, uh, the hospital, the medical school that um, had um, a great reputation as one of the first 
kind of research hospitals, uh, medical school based on the idea of scientific medicine. And so it was a very prominent institution for, both, uh, uh, for research. And there's been a long tradition. And often this comes down, it's really interesting to particular practitioners. So Hugh Hampton Young, who was a urologist, who was at, uh, at the Hopkins Hospital at the Brady Urological uh, Institute, he had an interest in the adrenal genital syndrome, what later becomes called, um, uh, is named by Lawson Wilkins as the uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So it's an interest, and, and, and just to kind of boil it down, it's, an, it's a, a metabolic condition caused by a, um, a hyperplasia of the adrenal gland, and that results, it leads to precocity, it leads to metabolic disturbances, but it also leads in girls to, what they call at the time sex reversals. So uh, girls as defined by the double X chromosomes are born with male appearing genitals. So they're often assigned as, as, as boys. And um, as they grow up, they look more and more male. And Yu Hampton is really interested in finding out more about this condition. He's a surgeon. He takes a surgical approach. He thinks this needs to be fixed. I mean, these conditions could also be life-threatening. And so he does take a surgical approach. And what of the pull of the institution is that so you have an expert and you have an institution. So this is a very rare condition. A lot of patients come to this place. And so they accumulate data and case studies and gain kind of uh, you know, medical scientific authority over this narrative. There are other places that are studying the same condition, but I think the name of Hopkins, the place kind of uh, creates this, um, uh, makes this makes this in an institution where you would go to solve these questions. And once uh, in the 1940s, when Wilkins uh, uh, takes over, Lawson Wilkins who's a pediatric endocrinologist takes over. And so he's building on this and he's taking over the patients and he's the first kind of the father of pediatric endocrinology. And again, it's this reputation of that institution that brings, uh, has these rare cases referred to that place. And so that's what matters, the place, the institutions, the reputations, already ongoing research, um, yes. So everyone sort of, <laughs> right, they were brought to it because it was so rare and they were the, yeah. the clinic that was specializing it. Um, now that makes perfect sense. Okay, so you mentioned Lawson Wilkins. Now, how did he determine true sex versus better sex? And what is the difference? Uh, that's a great question. And so, um, so in a way, um, Lawson Wilkins is not the only one struggling with that. And it's interesting saying it's in a way clinicians trying to define life, trying to find sex and gender, and kind of realizing the biology is actually much more complicated, it's much more messy, it's much more different than our neat little categories, our social categories that we have established, right? So, so in a way, like at the end of the 19th century, there's this, there's this moment where where sex becomes medicalized, as historians say. So what this means is basically doctors saying, oh, we know what sex is, we can define it. So if you have people with, that, whose sex is doubted and ambiguous sex, we, we can tell you, and we can tell you by looking at the gonads. So if they have ovaries, female, if they have um, uh, testes, male, 
of course, life doesn't work like that. And many of these people didn't identify in that sex or there were other factors or they didn't look like they had ovaries. They looked, they had male appearance or female appearance. So everything's got a little bit messy. And as time went, so in the beginning, it's kind of what people call the age of the gonads. It's like, you know, very strict uh, um, determination of two sex through the gonads. But it becomes like, and then, you know, the question is like, so what do hormones do? And then, you know, what, what about sex chromosomes? So as they find out more, like this category, this neat category of two sex falls apart. And so Wilkins does this really interesting thing as some, he's not, Wilkins is not a revolutionary. He's a you know, pediatrician gone, uh, becoming kind of biomedical innovator. He's uh, the first pediatric endocrinologist. And he wants to treat this interest in treating this, comes at it as a condition. He wants to treat, he's not interested in sex. He wants to treat these children. And so, but then he realizes we don't really know what that means. Like if we treat these children, then the question comes, how should they live? If these children with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, the ones that have the less severe condition who survive, but have this kind of um, male appearance, male genitalia. So what do we do? And practitioner ask him of conferences, well, what do we do? They get all panic about this. How should these live? And then he says like, well, you know, maybe, maybe you should just let them become males. Maybe it would be easier and to, for them to live as males. And of course that is completely, um, uh, um, inspired or formed formed or shaped by a social conception of how the life of a woman can be so his idea is like if you look male and you have male geni male appearance genitalia you're not going to marry you're not going to have children he thinks this 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 um patients cannot have children so well if you live as a male you can function as a male people see you as a male they appear you can live independently you might not have you don't have to marry and so that's kind of his idea behind it but it's really it's kind of this um accidental revolutionary so very normative idea about saying well it's pragmatic this is like the best thing for these patients right and that changes later once they introduce achievement but at the same time it's still something they need to do they still need to kind of introduce social norms and medical intervention to make uh to kind of find the better sex the sex that the children can live in the sex in which they can function in society and so that's the kind of new thing that comes about in the 1940s wow so they they had this idea that they could choose the the gender of the child based on what is convenient and that it would just kind of work out <laughs> uh, in a way or or i mean convenient um maybe maybe what what would work i think i think the idea i mean it's kind of paternalistic, but there's an underlying kind of aspect of care. So they're, they're thinking, you know, because it's very normative, they're thinking, oh, this person, this is the most likely way how this person become can kind of return to the world from the hospital as a fully functioning citizen and can fulfill, fulfill their role and, you know, live a happy life, which is an interesting treatment category that I also explore in the book. Right. So um, when it comes to uh, the, the kind of debate about nature versus nurture, they really thought that it was it was nurture, that it was it was all kind of the way that somebody was was raised as opposed to what they were born with. 
I think in the beginning, so with Lost and Wilkins, it's really very specific for these kind of children. But so he, when he introduces cortisone to treat these children, then the idea is, oh, now they can live as women. We still have to have do medical intervention. We still have to make sure that they have the proper gender role. We don't know the relationship, but let's figure out, you know, let's have a psychological evaluation of what's going on. And so he hires a psychologist, like barely graduated, from Harvard's um, Department of Social Relations, which is John Money, who's kind of famous and becomes very infamous um, towards the end of his life. And then there's already a psychiatrist, John Hampson, working with Wilkins and her husband, John Hampson, joins them later as also a psychiatrist. And this team, together with surgeon, study all the children, just not, not just the ones with that specific condition, but all children with intersex traits that come to the clinic, mm -hmm. children and young adults, right? because the, the, there's a limitation to what children can tell you about their gender role, even so they try to go um, beyond that. And so when they start, so by studying this, comparing the biological uh, categories, as I said in the beginning, with the social sector that people living with, they come to the conclusion, well, you know, the, the gender role that this, these children have formed always fits with the social role they've lived in, even if it's contradictory to the way they look, to the sex chromosomes or the gonads, there's always some kind of contradiction, but the one clear line that they claim they always find is this connection between the sex, the learned sex, the sex in which they grow up, if they're kind of like interacted and transacted in their terminology and the general. And so they say, well, if that's the case, we could assign any sex to children with intersex traits because they'll learn the gender role. The only thing we have to pay attention for is because genitals are really important as signifiers of sex. So the genital need to either fit or be kind of surgically fixable, which is a whole other problematic category mm -hmm. uh, to fit that assigned sex. And then gender role will follow. It's kind of a little, you, you, <laughs> if you build it, they will come. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, it's, it's this weird, it's this, it's this kind of causal effect. And so they also think about hormones. You have to think about what hormones will come, you know, uh, emerge in puberty. And you have to pay attention to that because the idea, what they're saying, the only way that gender role works, this, this kind of um, progression that they're proposing is it has to be convincing that there cannot be any doubts. You know, it had that. It cannot be ambiguous. It has to be really enforced. Um, uh, it has to be, you know, all girl. Parents need to be convinced this is a girl, and then the girl can grow up, and the general is going to be a girl. Anything that doesn't, so so the body is really important as the signifier of the gender role, and it becomes, yeah, and especially because they also argue that gender role becomes fixed after after a critical period, and I take that from animal studies and again um it's a metaphor and it's an interpretation that take a lot from imprinting the imprinting metaphor they use imprinting as a metaphor from conrad lawrence to say gender's imprinted in this two years and then you can't change it so we have this weird thing as i found fascinating that gender is you know it's it's fluid you can you can assign any gender but then it becomes fixed and actually you have to adjust the body of the child to the gender so it's a very particular formulation of gender role, which is very, uh, which lead, has a lot of, leads to a, a whole range of consequences. Wow. Now that actually leads really well into our next question. So despite its focus on helping patients fit in, how far did treatment and clinical attitudes reinforce the stigmatization of those who did not conform to gender norms? 
I think very much so, because the one thing I write in the book, and I think it's really important, and actually what really struck me uh, when I come to the, came to the topic, because I could never wrap my hand around, because I didn't, I, as, you, as you probably know, that there's a huge criticism of the kind of intersex, uh, intersex case management protocols that come from this moment. And the protocols that emerge from this moment is assign any sex uh, early and consistently adjust the body surgically to the sex, which means uh, non-consensual early genital surgery on children, right? Which immense consequences. Yeah. And, uh, and the consequences, you know, scarring, the traumas, the often despite the, despite, uh, the kind of, the clinicians urging parents to talk with their children about this kind of clinical history, that there's a silence around that. So a lot of uh, patients, you know, uh, carry a lot of trauma and there's a lot of criticism of the treatment. And the other thing that I wrap, couldn't wrap my hand around it, at the same time, you know, this is kind of the beginning of gender is learned, gender is environmental and social. And so in my research, what I found is it's, it's a highly normative, gender roles a highly normative concept. Right, and that explains why. Because in a way, if you lose that kind of biological anchor that kind of matches behavior and you know sex, uh, puts it together. So how do you know if you if you assign gender role, you have to anchor it in social norms? Because if they say you have to be consistently raised as a girl, what does it mean in that concept? You say that's learned, right? You take the norms of the time, which is the 1950s, and the very binary, um, you know, gender norms about what a woman is and what a man is and what the role of a, a woman and a man is or a boy or girl and the behavior. And then you try to match these children to that. So in a way, gender emerges from this moment as kind of like an interesting idea that seems very liberating, but it's really deeply informed by the social norms of the time. And that's how it also travels on, right, in through clinical textbooks. And it's still, you know, in intersex case management, this is still a practice today. And um, as for how it harms other gender non-binary individuals is, of course, that that's not an option, right? Because if you can assign gender, the idea there's something as gender non-binary or the kind of questioning of these categories at all, it doesn't play a role. There's something that's this kind of incentive to intervene and then you intervene and you, you separate it out again, apples and oranges, but you don't, you don't, there's no gray in between, right? Gray, the gray is scary and problematic in this scenario. It sounds like it. Yeah. So there is a lot of emphasis on making sure that these children were well-adjusted, mm -hmm. but what does it mean to be well-adjusted? Whose welfare was prioritized? Was it mm -hmm. children or the society or their parents? I think all of that, I think that's a really interesting question because, so, I mean, the well-adjusted is kind of the psychological term of the time that comes to us from the early 20th century as a measurement of kind of psychological well-being of being psychologically well-adjusted and maladjusted. And by the, so it means something specific in psychology and psychiatry, but by the 1950s is mainstream and the people in the clinic use it in both ways. But the idea behind it is that um, there are concerns that if people, if there are, um, if people grow up in this, you know, in a sex other than their biological one or one of their biological ones in the case of intersex trade, then it's, uh, 
they might not, you know, they might have psychological differences. And so well-adjusted on one on a clinical level becomes a kind of measurement to see, are they doing well in school? Are they before following the gender roles? Are they going to the prom? Are they, are they, do they have friends? Are they doing well in their homework? How are they doing college? Should they follow them also in their life and the parents reporting back? And then in terms of society, it becomes this really, it's this really important um, category for, for um, especially after the Second World War to kind of uh, uh, focus on children becoming, you know, being well-adjusted and becoming this uh, um, uh, well-adjusted, responsible citizens, Americans in a way. And uh, there's a lot of worries that, you know, bad upbringing, environmental education, bad environments will create maladjusted. It's a very loose term. It can mean anything, right? I'm so glad you mentioned that. So how did the growth of a distinctly American identity and the conscious construction of an American character impact the clinical understanding of gender? Uh, What did strict gender roles have to do with America after the Second World War? That's a great question. And it's a really really big question. So let me think for a moment. Um, as, As always, I have to go back a little bit. So... Uh, one of the things that we have in the beginning of the 20th century is this move in the social science and anthropology uh, towards the um, recognition of the importance of culture. So some historians say even that, you know, culture trumps biology in this discourses. And the idea is you go, it starts as anthropologists going to different cultures and observing them and noting that, you know, they have different gender roles, different sexual behavior, different understanding um, of what it means to be a man and woman. And so one of those cultural relativism in a way, because school in anthropology argues that your culture shapes your gender roles, they still say sex roles, it shapes your sexuality, and it's passed on, right? And so this is really important. During the Second World War, a lot of these, um, there's a shift in the social sciences from, you know, all cultures are kind of relevant, and these cultures are passed on, to kind of trying to explain the atrocities and the move to fascism in the Second World War, and one of the conclusions that they draw from them, well, maybe we should Uh, if culture is malleable, you know, if people are malleable in culture, we should really focus on what do we need to do to avoid the pitfalls of fascism? What do we need to do to raise, to mold our children into kind of democratic American citizens? So one is, the first question, what is an American? And we have kind of a lot of publications talking about that, what makes an American, and it's of course in a certain kind of way, it's biased, it's influenced by who's asking, and who's asking home but the, I mean the idea one of the one one scholar argues this is really about the immigration experience the first generation experience but um, in practical policy this is flipped on the top and what what people are thinking like well childhood development is really important everybody agrees that childhood is a critical phase in which children learn certain kinds of behaviors and ideologies and norms and so childhood becomes this critical moment in which um, Americans can be formed. So then the 1950s consequently become this 
uh, moment of social engineering, right? The idea that you can, uh, so proper raising, so proper education to, to focus on children's well-being and well-adjustment, you can engineer the democratic American citizen that is probably hygienic and has democratic values and well-adjusted and is cheerful. So all these categories come, is cheerful, is optimistic. Um, often uh, uh, a lot of these definitions focus around male citizens. So I have less information about female ones even so that plays a role as well. But there's a kind of particular, very stereotypical figure that emerges that seems to be modeled on kind of a white middle-class idea of Americanness. And so the important factor in the shift from the 20s and 30s to the 50s is that in the 20s and 30s would be like, oh, we can observe how culture uh, forms particular uh, behavior uh, personality, uh, uh, how culture forms personality in the 1950s is like, well, if you know that culture forms personality, we actually have to actively work to have, you know, to, to, form, to form this American democratic personality in our children. Wow, it seems almost counterintuitive to me, the idea that the way to prevent fascism is through really strict gender roles. <laughs> you know, I, you'd think you'd be the, the opposite, that you wouldn't want anything to be too strict. Um, anyway, that's really odd to me. That's really interesting. So do you think that this study tells us more about Americans than it tells us about actual gender? I think it, I think it does both. I mean, I, when one, I mean... To bring this together, I mean, one of the arguments I'm, I'm trying to make is that I think that this particular formulation of, of, of gender is very American, and not just because of the word, you know, other people talk about, I mean, people talked about sex roles before, Simone de Bois writes a whole book and doesn't have to use gender to kind of come to a similar, but very different, also very different conclusion, you know, that women is not born, women is made, to paraphrase, and so, uh, I think, uh, but I think this particular clinical formulation of gender, the particular norms, this focus on um, uh, social engineering, on producing uh, a certain kind of citizenship through gender roles is one important factor in it. And, you know, those are parts that happen all around. This is kind of more the, the matrix or the, 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 the background in which that in which the, the formulation of gender happens in the clinic, right? So it's not that the clinic shapes um, uh, the, the broader outset, but I think it's, it's in, in, in dialogue with it, right? It's a, a porous space where these ideas come out and uh, come in and go out again. Right. Now, you say that the idea of gender took on a life of its own in the 1960s, and it seems kind of hard to pin down after that point. So how did it change? Where did it go? That's a great question again. And I, uh, so no, thank you for that question. It's, um, it's actually was one of the things that I also really enjoyed writing to kind of think about what happens about gender when it leaves the clinic. I mean, in a way also, because what brought me to this topic was I'm a gender historian, you know, I'm interested in things. I've been studying the kind of later phase of this, but I, I was wondering how do these things connect, right? And it's, um, so the different pathways, I think we can think about three. So one is kind of the clinical psychological one. Gender is picked up. Money really insists it's gender role. It's very functional. So it's very 1950s uh, uh, perception of um, 
uh, formulation of gender. And it's taken up by uh, other psychologists in the 60s, especially Robert Stoller, who adds gender identity, which gives the term more flexibility. So gender identity is really as, as a combination with gender roles in a way that allows people to say, well, I'm a man, but I'm not a very masculine man. So it gives a nuance to the concept. And this is, becomes really important in the emergence of um, gender identity clinics, um, or as they were called sometimes in the time, sex change clinics in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And here again, Hopkins is at the forefront where, where gender identity becomes this important uh, category of measurement of whether um, trans individuals uh, get access to gender, what we now call gender affirmative care, right? And so, so but it's like, slightly different to what money's formulation, normative formulation, it's still normative. So the normativity stays in there and the normativity of the gender roles that have to be enforced. And I think that's a legacy that we need to reckon with, right? Because it shapes the lives of so many people in, in often very problematic ways. And so this is kind of one strand. And then there's the other strand that's, um, of course, feminists and kind of women, women who are activists in the women's liberation movement take note of these uh, of this new terminology and of these theories. And it's interesting for them, from one hand, because they they carry the weight of you know clinical data, and 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 so they can make an argument uh, for for um, you know that gender is learned. But at the same time, they notice right away. That this is a this is really normative. This is not actually what we're talking about. So one of the things uh, they, they've they've questioned sex roles as they were called before. Uh, women feminists have questioned that for decades. They don't need gender to do it. But as gender comes along, they say like, okay, this is really interesting. But you're using this really normative conceptions of men and women, and then you're transposing them on trans individuals, and it creates this whole kind of controversies in feminist circles. And what happens then is that they say, well, if you can learn gender, can't you unlearn it and not money? And I say, no, 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 no. This is not how it works. It's much more complicated. And you know, and and he's like flipping back and forth on that. So he he. He's he thinks like he wants to be a, um, you know, like I'm giving this material to the women's liberation and contributing. I'm, I'm this liberal, I'm doing this. But at the same time, he says like, well, but it's not that simple because men really don't want to do housework. So it becomes this sort of interesting back and forth. But um, but but feminists say like, well, you know, we don't care. Like we like, we just like if if uh, if gender is learned and you can be honest, we can make it whatever it is and we can do it not over generations, we can do it right away. And girls can be wild and play with cars and become mechanics and be boisterous and love other women. And boys can also be whatever they want, but it becomes like the, the, the category frazzles in a way. So this is kind of this early, late 1960s and early 1970s moment. The third one I found really interesting also is that, and actually the most interesting is like how gender kind of, uh, uh, seeps into this uh, in the daily balance of people. It becomes part of the, the com gender becomes part of people's conversations. Uh, people start slowly, slowly using gender instead of sex. And this is really interesting moment where you don't quite know why this change and that we can follow it. I follow it a little bit, like how gender gets this disseminated. It's used very, differently, very disparately. People use it for very, sometimes as a 
to as a a substitute for sex, you know, they just use gender, uh, but you know, it could also be sex in, in a way, but sometimes they use it in a very uh, proactive kind of critical way. There's queer communities, especially, so I looked a bit in queer underground journals and they use gender very actively to kind of question the whole category of, of, of a gender binary. There's drag uh, queen performances who's, who call, and I can't say this on uh, a podcast, I think, uh, who, but who basically, um, a queering gender and saying we use these different cues, these different norms to disrupt the narrative of gender and that's as early as the 1970s and that's actually the thing I found really fascinating and uh, I want to learn actually more about because it's so interesting how and when do people start picking up gender? How do people talk about it? How do you make sense of this category that kind of seeps out of the clinic? And, you know, even as a feminist activist and later very scholarly discourse, but there are people out there in, in the streets and the bars and the clubs, they're using it and they're using it as they please. And they're using it very different to uh, what the clinic had in mind. And uh, I found a lot of joy in reading this, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, it's really taken on a life of its own. You're right. So many people think that, you know, sex and gender are basically um, interchangeable. And a lot of people think that that gender is just as inherent as is like biological sex. Um, and even now, of course, we're seeing more and more. Uh, there are a lot of people who have a hard time kind of wrapping their heads around the idea of, of transgender or non-binary people who, of course, we know these are valid identities. It's, it's who they are. But what does all of this mean for them, for, for people who might not fall into those categories? So um, let me first say that I think it's really important it's really important to acknowledge that our gender non-binary individuals or trans individuals have, you know, as many as many recent studies have shown, have really existed for a very long time and yes. have passed and have lived and have had their lives. And so in a way also didn't need gender or, you know, the, the kind of category of gender or medical intervention to live their life as uh, even so they faced a lot of hindrances and discrimination. And I think um, the, the implications, I think what's really important uh, to know about gender, I think for all of us, not just for this community, is A, that gender is a dynamic concept. Right, it changes, its meaning changes over time. It changes in the context in which we live in. It changes uh, in the ways we define its relation. And it changes not only with the times, but it also changes in, in, in the different, who's in, depending on who's using it, right? In different, I don't think we always talk about the same thing when we say gender. I think we say gender, but I might be talking about something very different, have a different definition of gender than somebody else or a clinician. Uh, so it's this, I think it's very important to note that in order to also find a dialogue for all of us to communicate and say like, what do we mean by it and what's at stake? And I think that's the second thing that I think it's really important is what is at stake, right? And it's all our lives are at stake. And I mean, in a way, is gender still a valid category now that I showed this kind of all frazzled and made up? And But of course it is because it kind of denotes and underwrites hierarchies and uh, inclusion and inclusion in this society. And we can see that clearly 
in this current controversies uh, that uh, people are facing, and we think that might appear as separate um, fights, so the moral panic about uh, about trans individuals, the bathroom panics, the 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 the, the panics about trans children. Uh, I mean, that's a moral panic that we're facing, but they're very closely also connected to kind of this ongoing struggle to define, you know, who gets the power to define what a woman and a man is, and with what implications. And so, like, none of this kind of the people who put down their foot and say, "Oh, we're going to redefine and say really what a woman is," has a, you know. Uh, comes up with a category that is in, uh, inclusive or in any way, you know, um, uh, not tied to some very essentialist and normative idea about womanhood, right? And I think, you know, if we can take it further, then the next step is to look about reproductive rights and the recent attack on reproductive rights. And so in a way, these definitions of gender, what makes a woman and what, what, what makes it essential, what needs to be protected, it's always about power. And so it's important to think how these categories are used and how we are using them and how they affect not just gender non-binary individuals, but all of us in a way, right? I mean, it's kind of, um, yeah, I think I'll stop here. How they affect all of us. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's so well said, my goodness. And, and if I can just ask as well, how um, how does race influence all of this? How 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 was the study of gender influenced by by the study of race around this time that all of this is taking off? Mm -hmm. So you know, if I go back to my book, uh, I mean, the one thing I note in my book is kind of this absence, uh, absence, the absence of patients, black patients, patients of color, and one of the reasons uh, might just be that they're kind of written out of the archive. Uh, so one of the things I thought about, you know, to say more about uh, the presence, you know, like how does this affect, how does this play out, what relationship does this kind of intervention of gender have to raise, I really wanted to kind of empirically address it and see, so the few cases we see in the published literature, these children are treated differently, they seem less reliable, more sexual, more deviant, in kind of the same language that, um, uh, Black people and people of color are discriminated against at the same time and kind of racially profiled in, in the clinic. But I think there's also something to be said that um, this particular formulation of gender, you know, the norms are very much uh, modeled on a, on a kind of white middle class, um, middle class heterosexual understanding of, uh, of, of, of humanity at the time. Right, those are the norms that it's modeled on, and in its own character, it's very exclusionary. So I think there needs to be much more work done uh, uh, to think about, you know, how does this implicate race? How does it, uh, okay, and also to really look empirically, like what do communities, how do other communities deal? Is there a way to not medicalize intersex trade? Is there a different way these uh, conditions are integrated in other communities? Do they not come under the purview of, of medicine? And if they come how are they treated differently uh, um, uh, in accordance with the racial discrimination, kind of this racial classification at the time. So that's one of the kind of more empirical questions I had. And I think it's uh, in a way something where I would love to see more, more empirical studies coming out that really look at how this works out. I mean, I have to say though, 
uh, other historians have shown that there's also a writing away of this because um, a lot of the trans patients that are used in clinical studies are actually the first one who comes to Hopkins uh, is uh, African-American. And so this nothing is made of that. This is kind of written out of the story. And um, even so, it's an important factor. It is. I'm glad that you mentioned the doctors. So um, the doctors in the book, there are so many of them, and they're they're really kind of complicated characters. You know, they're they're kind of heroes sometimes. Sometimes they seem like villains, uh, but they're they're pioneers. Really, they're the first people to kind of do this. So, what is their legacy? How does their work affect this kind of treatment today for people born with intersex traits? I think it's it's messy and complicated. I think there there are now you know, with the hindsight of history, very complicated characters, and also at the time. I wanted to approach this very kind of hurtful and complicated, messy history as a historian. And so for me, it was really important to see, so what motivates and why are they doing that? What's the clinical uh, and, and personal interest that they do these things that are now criticized, especially by people but the intersex movement intersex rights movement is highly problematic you know there's like formulation these are torturous they're torturing children and i really want to know what's happened how does how does it become possible right how does this become something that makes sense to the people who are involved and it makes sense because it comes out of this like 1950s paternalistic medical system where doctors know what's right and they feel like they have an in um, incentive to care, to research, to uh, to to uh, to cure, to take, you know, to to formulate and define uh, what's going in the patient, and at the same time, de- they're dealing with very complicated uh, situation where they're there are parents who don't know what's going on. They they put in pressure on the doctors. The doctors are trying to figure out how how to address the situation, and they do it through their very normative. Uh, um, uh, perception of what gender is and what medicine is and what a human being is, and it haven't with a like an impulse for care, right? But the care, what they perceive as care, can be very problematic because the patients are involved to have no voice, and it's very problematic because that system carries on because they are pioneers, because they're seen as innovators, because it seems to provide a solution to a very complex problem. They make it easy. And every time somebody makes something easy, it's very suspicious because it doesn't account for the complexity of human beings, of our psychology, of our biology, of the different actors in the story. And the children are just the ones who are not being heard in there. And so even so they try sometimes. And so the problem is, this carries on. So then we are in the 1980s and we still have a system that is, you know, of intersex case management that is modeled on a paternalistic 1950s normative idea of medicine and gender. And I think that's one of the problems. Like that's like, and so when I wrote this, I thought I wanted to understand, not apologize, not, you know, not acknowledge anything, but understand what drives these characters. Why are they doing this? And I also wanted to understand and give the patients in these situations, in this clinic, a voice, because they're not heard. I mean, I was very lucky that I could work with patient records, that I could kind of resurrect some kind of a patient voice and really try to hear 
to understand what might they have felt, how they might have found themselves in how in the situation, of, how, how did it look from their side as they were growing up under this kind of clinical gaze. So I kind of tried to do justice to this all sides of the story and understand with the, you know, with the conviction that the patients needed to be resurrected in a particular way. Right. Do we know what happened to them or does the story just end with the clinical records? So my story ends with the clinical records. I mean, that's in a way, uh, I, uh, so my story ends when the clinical record ends and this kind of the limitation of the historian that, you know, the, 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 the archive, the sources you get determine what you, in a way, what you can say, and you have to be really careful and, um, and conscious of the limitation of the sources and how the story ends, right? And I, I have these little stories in the book where I talk about in the lives of individual patients and they always end with, this is how the record ends, right? But we know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of um, uh, individuals with intersex traits who've gone public, who've talked about their experiences, who've formed coalitions, who formed the whole movement and have spoken by the 80s, 90s about their experiences exactly in this time period. And I think this is really important and it's important for, for physicians to listen to these voices, for doctors, for clinicians to listen to what they're saying. Because the story doesn't end with my book, it goes on, it just ends for me as a historian. Right, absolutely. So in the epilogue, you invite us to imagine a world where gender has no social meaning or consequence. And I can't help thinking that sounds like it would be a lot more peaceful. (laughs) I would imagine that most people don't feel like they fit into these strictly male or strictly female categories. And not having that societal baggage that goes along with it would free people to live the way that they want to, rather than the way that they think that they have to. So given what we've learned about how the clinic invented gender, does the concept of gender have any real use in the modern world? That's a question I grapple with in the epilogue of the book, as you rightly put it, and it's, uh, um, I'm still divided, right? I'm still divided about it because I think it depends on the perspective that you're looking at, because I think we don't, we can't really say that it doesn't have any, um, that it's not valid anymore if it's used, still used as an instrument of power. Mm-hmm. And it is. I mean, for many of the examples I've cited earlier, such as the kind of policing of uh, policing of gens- uh, gender um, expressions and lives, of, of reproductive lives of women, debates about what women's roles is. So I think it's still, and you know, also men, men are being policed as well and giving limitations of what it means to be a man, how can they can be. So if gender is still used as an instrument of power, then I think it is valid. I mean, can use as a category to ask those questions and pull them apart, knowing that, uh, that you know, this is an ongoing and open debate. Nobody determines this meaning. It's the struggle to determine the meaning of this category that's problematic, that shows us something about the under, you know, the power that underwrites it. And then the sentence, you know, I struggle a lot, a lot of time with that last sentence that you just quoted. And I wanted to end the book on something that gave me hope and made it possible. And it doesn't say that we don't have to have a gender, but I think I just I, I just wanted to imagine what would it mean to have certain characteristics to just be without that burden of 
that gender sometimes puts on us, that these are in, read and interpreted sort of person of gender. I have this one quote that I, you know, kind of, I think that um, Denise Riley has about the horror of gender, the horror of being, you know, trapped in your gender all the time. And she means it a little bit different, but I always like that one phrase, you know, there's something that's very limiting uh, in, 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 in um, this, this prescriptions. And so, you know, having acknowledged sort of the book and the epilogue that, you know, we can't abandon this category because it's it's an ongoing conflict that, we, that we're facing that impacts all of our lives. I also wanted to take this moment to think that maybe we can think about this. Maybe we can unravel this category and kind of uh, detach behavior from, uh, uh, from, uh, from sex and from gender in a way. Right. It's so much to think about. Goodness. Well, the, the book is an absolutely incredible read. It's so, so interesting. And uh, I'm so glad we were able to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was <laughs> such a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. Now, I'm sure that everyone's going to be very interested in this. So uh, where can we find more of you and your work? Uh, so the book is uh, University of Chicago Press. You can order it from uni directly from University of Chicago Press or go to your independent bookstore and ask them to order it for you. I also quoted a book uh, called Pink and Blue, Gender, Culture, and the Health of Children, which came out last year, 2021, with Rutgers University Press. And again, you can get it at Rutgers University Press at their website or at your local independent bookstore. And we sure will. That is wonderful. Again, thank you so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Ada for stopping by the show. Her new book is How the Clinic Made Gender, A Medical History of a Transformative Idea, and it's out now. As a special bonus this week, we also have an extra episode up on our Patreon about General Casimir Pulaski. Pulaski was a Revolutionary War hero known as the father of the American cavalry, and he was also intersex. We posted about this this week on our social media accounts, but if you want a longer story, you can find that mini-episode on our Patreon at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. It's up now for tiers two and three. And speaking of Patreon, we'd like to thank our fabulous patrons, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Mary McComb, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Kelly Simon, Sylvia Van Eyck, Jay Val, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. If you want more great stories while you're waiting for the next episode, we also have six years of post archives on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.